welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Hannah Johnson. She currently holds two master's degrees in medieval literature and is a first-year PhD student at the Sorbonne University. Her research, a linguistic analysis of homoeroticism in Germanophone female mystical writing in the 12th and 14th centuries, is an intersection of gender and sexuality studies, medieval literature, and linguistics. Hannah, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So today you're here to speak to us about Mechthild von Magdeburg, but before we get into her, let's talk about you. How did you get interested in the academic world of mysticism? Yeah, it was kind of an accident, actually. It's always an accident. No one comes to this on purpose, although it's always a happy accident. So how did yours happen? So I took Latin and I took a medieval literature course in um, undergraduate year. And I think it was my third year or something like this. And I didn't like classical Latin and I quite liked medieval literature. And I decided I needed to learn medieval Latin in order to become a medievalist. And in trying to find someone that I could read, my Latin professor sort of suggested Hildegard von Bingen. So I started looking into her and I started reading her poetry and I discovered her Marian poems and I just became so enraptured with everything about them. <laughs> there, It was just a side of medieval literature I'd never known before, had never even like occurred to me as a possibility. And so from there, I was like, this is it. I'm going to study the female mystics and that's just going to be that. And then since then, I've just kind of been obsessed in both of my master's programs. I've tried really hard to gear myself towards that. That's so funny. My shift from classics to medieval was also trying to escape classical Latin. Although if I could have escaped Latin altogether, that would have been my preference. So you're here to talk about Mechthild, but Hildegard was your gateway mystic. Absolutely. She led me to all of the other Germanic mystics that I study, and I think that it's precisely because of her that I study the Germanic mystics as well. And do you remember when you first came across Mechthild and her work? You know, I don't really remember, and that's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> I think that a professor of mine had suggested that I try to expand on the different mystics that I'm studying and not just do Hildegard. Who's... And so I was looking into other Germanic female mystics that we know about, and I came across both Hadwig and Mechthild von Magdeburg. So I just started reading what they wrote as well. And Mechthild is a bit of an anomaly for me because she doesn't write just poetry, but I was really captivated by the way that she expressed her spirituality. So she just sort of got filtered into my armada of female mystics. I love that. I'm picturing them all on the giant boat that then crushes Catherine of Siena. <laughs> if you don't understand that reference, go back and listen to episode six. But today we're here to speak about Mechthild von Magdeburg. So Hannah, what do we know about her? So we only know things about her that are written down in her spiritual work. And calling it even a spiritual work is a bit iffy. There have been multiple suggestions as to what to call it. It's called Das Friesende Richt der Gottheit, or the flowing light of the Godhead. And it's not really visions, or it's not 100% visions. Sometimes it's prayers, or kind of spiritual observations even. So it's been proposed that we call them her journals. And in these journals, as it were, Mechthild reveals things about her life or gives us hints as to who she was. But this is it. This is all we have to go on. So essentially, Mechthild is probably from petty nobility because she doesn't seem to know Latin. In fact, it's kind of widely accepted that she didn't speak Latin, even though there are actually some Latin phrases in 
the later books, it's sort of assumed that she very slowly accumulated certain phrases of Latin over the years of being a mystic and of interacting with other mystics and with other religious, male religious. And Waltraud Verlaget has even posited that potentially Mechthild learned certain Latin phrases from Hadwig van Antwerpen because Magdeburg was a place of movement and transmission of like texts and ideas. So it's thought that Hadwig's text made it over there. And especially because the dialect that Hadwig was writing in was quite close to the dialect that Mechthild was speaking. So she could have understood that and could have attained Latin through this sort of like method of translation. But by and large, she didn't really speak Latin, which means that she definitely wasn't high nobility. But it's assumed that she was probably nobility of some sort because of the way that she regards poverty. For Mechthild, if poverty is a choice, then it's a good thing. Then it's valuable. It's a valuable choice to make. And it's worthy of praise if you choose poverty. But if you are poor by birth, then she's quite disgusted by it. And you can see that in some of her visions, where she just really seems to have a certain disdain for people who don't choose poverty, but just are poor. So she doesn't like people who are actually poor, just people who had money and chose to give it all away. Precisely, because choosing to be poor means that you're doing it as an act of spirituality. If you're born poor, then you're just lesser than as a human. Well, that's classist and awful. Exactly. <laughs> and this isn't the only place where you see this from Mechthild. There are a number of places in her writings where she really seems to portray a very noble kind of mindset or where she uses explicitly like courtly motifs or metaphors that you would see in courtly literature of the time. So there are a lot of indications that she was familiar with this courtly and noble lifestyle and had these uh, more pretentious attitudes, but that she deeply, deeply strove to be like a good spiritual person who would choose to reject wealth and status, as it were. So yes, we know that she became a begging. So she decided to move to Magdeburg when she was in her teens. And she became a begging. It is relatively clear that she did not have a good relationship with the community of beggings that she joined. I mean, I can't imagine why. She sounds like such a peach. <laughs> she seems to sort of disdain her fellow beggings when they do come up in her text and even accuses some of them actually of being lustful, which is uh, an interesting thing. And you just don't get this sense that she had any real form of like companionship or community for the vast majority of, of her life as a begin. The person that she was probably closest to was her confessor, uh, Heinrich von Halle, who also lived in Magdeburg. And he was the one who encouraged her to write down these visions that she had been having since her youth. And even he kind of has a bit of a tumultuous relationship with her. Not a lot is said about that. So yeah, so she really didn't have much of anyone in Magdeburg. Um, you kind of get the sense that she was just kind of wandering in the streets of Magdeburg, shouting about how people should be poor and should be yearning for God and being quite angry at people who were not doing faith correctly to a certain degree. And we also know that near the end of her life, she moved into the convent at Helfte and probably influenced the mysticism that was coming out of Helfte. And it's there that she understands what it means to be in a community. 
it depends on whether or not you agree that her books were written in chronological order. And we could get into that because that is a whole debate, but it's a bit nebulous and there's no answer. So assuming that you prescribe to this idea that the books were written in chronological order, she gets to Helfta and you kind of get the sense in the last books that she understands what it means to be in a community of not just religious women, but religious women who seemed to understand this relationship that she was having with God. And what kind of relationship was that? Well, the spiritual longing and extreme love for God. And there were mystics at Helfta that we know about, right? There's Mechthild von Hackeborn and there's um, Gertrude the Great. And in their mysticism, there are certain similarities, I think, with Mechthild's. First and foremost, this like really extreme affection and longing for God, this real desire to unite with him that Mechthild had that I don't think that she experienced anywhere else. So yeah, so that's kind of where she ends up. She gets sick while she's at the convent in Helfta, and that is where she dies. And that's really all we know about her biography. So she was a begging, but she hated them, and then she went to Helfta, and she liked them, and then she died. Shortly put, yes. (laughs) And she was classist and just kind of miserable. Yeah, she seems like quite a miserable person. And I mean, that's what's really interesting about Mechthild, isn't it? Because... On the surface, she just seems like a really sort of miserable hag running around, um, (laughs) being angry about everything all of the time. I don't necessarily think that she was. I think that she found a lot of consolation in her spirituality and in her love for God. And this is perhaps the most fascinating thing about Mechthild is that that which brings her solace is also that which brings her misery and so on and so on and so on, sort of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And this is at once really typical of 13th century Germanic female mysticism and also something that Mechthild does to an extreme because it's really often said of Mechthild that she hated her body. She wanted to reject the flesh. She wanted to reject this world. She was purely interested in the spiritual. Uh, She was clearly extremely unhappy in life. And I don't think that she wasn't unhappy with this world, but in the way that someone who is aware of the faults and the sort of misery of (laughs) the people around her is unhappy with their world. It's like any activist today, I think, could could relate to this. And I think that we can look at Mechthild as a kind of activist to a certain degree. Like she really, really was just advocating for the consolation that is God and for the, the ultimate love and happiness and peace that one can find in spirituality and in faith and in loving God specifically. And I don't think that that means for her a rejection of the world that we live in. I think that that means living in this world, understanding its misery, subjecting oneself to its misery, and understanding that that is how we can reach God. And I think that that's at the core of her spirituality. And that's why she's not necessarily just a miserable hag. Like, (laughs) all of this for a reason. So she's miserable because you need to be miserable in order to love God. What is Mechthild's relationship with the divine like? 
Well, it's a bit complicated. It depends really on who you're calling the divine in this scenario, because there's God and then there's also love or Minna in German. And they are the same. They're definitely one and the same for Mechthild, but they're also not the same. It depends on what message she's trying to get across, what her relationship is with God, essentially. Sometimes it's quite painful and sometimes it's quite ecstatic. If she's trying to communicate this idea of consolation and the joy that one can have when one is welcomed into the kingdom of heaven and union with the divine or ultimate dissolution into the abyss, it seems very lovely. And it's even borderline erotic. Like she has this one really great passage actually to describe this joy of union that she has in God. And it's very vivid image of God laying in some grass, which is more or less described as like a sex infused grass or desire infused grass. And he more or less sort of pats the grass next to him and says, come to me, my love. And she's like, ah, heck yeah, this is what I want. And so it's a very, very ecstatic relationship, and it's a very consolatory relationship that she has with God. And then there are other relationships, or there are other times where she expresses that it's quite painful. There's a really great German word to describe this feeling, I think, that she has for God, and it's Sehnsucht. There's not a word for it. It doesn't translate quite into English, but the idea is this like very intense longing that is at once very painful and very pleasurable in its intensity. And I think that this is something akin to what she experiences. That sounds both complicated and dramatic. Could you give us an example of this in the text? I can actually read a passage from her second book, chapter 25, where she says, How painfully I long for you when you want to spare me. This all creatures would not be able to express to you fully if they were to lament on my behalf, for I suffer inhuman anguish. Human death I would find more pleasant. I seek you with my thoughts, as a maiden secretly does her lover. I shall fall terribly sick from this, for I am bound to you. The bond is stronger than I am, thus I cannot become free of love. I cry out to you in great longing, a lonely voice, and I hope for your coming with heavy heart. I cannot rest, I am on fire, unquenchable in your burning love. I pursue you with all my might. If I had the strength of a giant, and if I got onto your trail, still I would quickly lose your tracks. Please, my love, run not so far ahead of me and tarry a while in love so that I can catch you. And later in the same poem, in the same chapter, she says, Lord, two things I ask you. In your kindness, instruct me. When my eyes weep in loneliness, and my mouth remains mute in its simplicity, and my tongue is constricted in affliction, and my senses ask me again and again what is wrong with me, then, Lord, everything in me is directed toward you. When my flesh wastes away, my blood dries up, my bones torture me, my veins contract, and my heart melts out of love for you, and my soul roars with the bellow strings of a hungry lion, tell me, dearest one, what will it be like for me then, and where will you be? Wow, a lot is happening there. So it's very physical, very visceral, very painful, and incredibly human. And this is why I think it's often said that she rejects the flesh. But I don't think that you can describe this kind of longing without the flesh. She would not be able to describe the way that she is pained 
and the way that she is longing if she didn't have her flesh. So I don't think that this is a rejection of her body so much as it is just like a really desperate attempt of someone who is being torn up on the inside with sheer desire and longing to get to this desire-infused grass in the garden, just trying to describe this feeling. And she often, especially in the chapters, which are poetry, gets very, very vivid and carnal with her imagery in order to try to describe this painful desire. So would you say that this relationship, this desire, that that's the key theme that we see in her work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, a lot of her writing reads like lover's poetry, which is one of the things that leads us to think that she's noble. This is very courtly in a certain sense. And I think that ultimately for her, her spirituality and this relationship that she has with God is one of a lover. We can argue whether that means erotic or not. I think that just generally the point is that for her, faith is desiring the divine above all things. So obviously mystical texts run across quite a broad spectrum, but how easy would you say Mechtild is to read and understand? I think that Mechtild can be quite easy to read for someone who is not a scholar of mysticism, in the sense that I don't think it's difficult to really feel with her what she's feeling. I think that you can read her texts, and I think that anyone can relate to this sort of like extreme sense of pain or joy or whatever it is that she's feeling. I think that when you want to get into the more complex ideas of the nature of her relationship with God, whether or not she really considers God to be love or whether they're kind of different entities, whether she also associates pain also gets personified, suffering gets personified in her work as well as love, separately from God. And yet in this passage that we just read, you could easily make the argument that God is also suffering. And so when you want to get into what is God to her, is God the one inflicting suffering? Is he not? When you want to really get into the theology of it, I would say that she's on the harder end of the scale of decipherability. But yeah, in terms of just the raw emotion, I think that anyone could read her and understand her. You mentioned earlier that the genre of the text is a little bit hard to nail down. So what is it actually composed of? So her text is kind of a hodgepodge <laughs> of a lot of things. There are chapters that are prayers. There are chapters that are just extensive prose. There are chapters that are seemingly attacks on people around her. There are chapters that are quite vision-esque. They're definitely sort of visions. There's chapters that are poems. There are chapters just kind of don't really fit into any of these categories. And there's no rhyme or rhythm to the way that they're organized. And we don't even know if the books as they're compiled were compiled in chronological order, or if she more or less wrote them in chronological order. But then when she went back, because she had written a new book and then had decided that she was going to, in air quotes, publish, as it were, the next installment of this mystical text, that she went back and added to previous books the jury is still out on that one. Or because we don't possess the original manuscript, this could just be how it was compiled in subsequent copies, because this made most sense to the person who was copying the oldest extant version. So we don't know why it's compiled this way. 
But what we do know is that there's no poetry section. There's no vision section. There's no, this book is this and that book is that. It's like, nope, here's book one and here's a list of the chapters and there's no rhyme or reason. There's seemingly no organization and we just don't have the answers as to why that is. And it doesn't really seem to matter what the organization is ultimately because the German version is just as unorganized as the Latin translations that followed. And in fact, there are some Latin translations that attempted to make it more coherent and attempted to like compile certain chapters together into books according to theme. And in a way that almost makes less sense because I think that Mechthild was kind of a chaotic person. You kind of get the sense when reading this that she was more consumed with what she was feeling and was more concerned with getting her message across in each individual chapter than she was organizing and making it coherent and easy to follow. I think that with Mechthild, what's key is just the emotions that she makes you feel in each chapter and not here is an itemized list of how you can attain this relationship with God because you attain a relationship with God or you attain union with God through your emotions. So yeah, it's just one of the many things that just makes no sense about Mechthild that just is what it is. So in all of this hodgepodge, are there moments that really stand out? There have been a couple. The passage that I read earlier is one that I quite like because I'm really, really taken with just with how raw her longing is in that passage. There's another section where she describes getting really drunk in a tavern and then ending up on the streets. And it's probable that she strips at some point. And she's kind of just like, whatever anyone does to me while I am in this like extremely intoxicated state on the streets roaming about like a mad woman half-dressed doesn't matter because I'm just doing all of this for the love of God. And they can do this to me, but that's just because they're sinners. And that's really quite striking (laughs) as an image. That was quite a shocking chapter to read as well, because she had quite an intimate knowledge of what a person would do if they were that intoxicated. And it was quite vivid imagery of going to a tavern of all places to describe essentially a Eucharistic act of drinking the wine that would give her the grace of God. And it was a really sort of base image for this (laughs) quite spiritual interaction. So that was one of the more Mechthild, what are you doing moments. And there's another one where she's attempting to describe her theory of the abyss. And without going too much into detail, the idea of the abyss is that God is the abyss, right? He's just this like eternal nothing that the mystic or that a faithful person should aspire to dissolve into. And so you descend into abyss. In descending, you ascend to union with God. And it's very unclear in a lot of ways as metaphor, but a lot of mystics use this. Um, And so it really depends on the mystic that you're talking about. But essentially, she has this idea of the abyss that she's trying to describe. And she's trying to describe the ascent and the descent. And it's quite paradoxical and contradictory. And she describes descending to the lowest point in order to ascend. And in describing this, she says something to the effect of, I want to descend so low as to be sitting in Satan's ass crack, because that would make me worthy of you, God. 
and that again really really vivid raunchy imagery to describe something that is ultimately very spiritual and very associated with the divine she just wants to be worthy of god and reaching satan's ass crack will do that for her and this is part of the strangeness and the paradoxical nature of her spirituality where it's very concerned with everything that you wouldn't think would allow you to get to god the suffering and taverns and asses will lead you to god those are some of the more striking passages i mean do you want to backtrack and take back the part where you said she was really easy to understand maybe i should <laughs> no because as i said she can be quite difficult and i think that because these things get into the theology aspect of it this is the difficult part. If you're just reading her wanting to sleep with God, that's, <laughs> that's quite easy to understand. And I think a final passage, if I can, is one where she describes how an animal is like unto a human in 30 aspects of its nature. It's a giant metaphor for the ideal human or the ideal Christian human who is ultimately very faithful. And what she ends up describing is this animal that is not real is completely composed of different parts of different animals and you spend a lot of the chapter sort of more wondering what this animal looks like and not so much wondering what it is that she's talking about spiritually at least at least for me i was more concerned with what the heck is this animal where is this coming from and not so much like oh no she's just trying to compose a perfect spiritual christian <laughs> I mean, were you that concerned? Because if I recall our conversation about that, you just thought he looked like a fish. She describes it as having a fish skeleton and also as having a tail. So in my defense, I skipped over the part where he had horns and ears and human eyes that cry and swift feet. He seemed like a metaphor for Christ. And in fact, upon closer inspection, this is fully not the case. <laughs> Well, on this topic, this particular passage actually inspired a project that you and I are working on together. Yes, Amanda, you wanted me to explain this animal to you, essentially, because neither of us could figure out whether or not it was a fish. And in doing some sort of more close reading in order to figure out what the heck is going on in this chapter, I drew you the animal. Yes, you did, and I love him! And this sparked our beautiful project, Envisioning Visions. That it did. You took this vision that was just an assembly of descriptions of parts of an animal and turned it into something that was a whole and was amazing and that we don't really get to see when we're reading these texts. Because there are not often pictures or images in manuscripts of what these visions were. And so we have the great privilege of imagining them for ourselves. But I mean, sometimes you just don't want to imagine them for yourself. You want someone to tell you what these things are. And not everyone has someone as wonderful as you to draw these for them. And while your interpretation is obviously amazing, and I love it so much, we also wondered what other readers and other artists would think of this passage, how they would interpret it, what their versions of this animal that represents humanity would look like. And I think something that's really important to keep in mind for the medieval reader more so than the modern reader, because for a modern reader, it's really distracting trying to figure out what the heck this animal is or what the heck is going on in a lot of these visions. Whereas I think for a medieval reader, it wouldn't have been distracting so much as it would have been a help 
to understand what this person is talking about, right? Because these are ineffable concepts. They're not meant to be spoken and put into material form. And the best way, therefore, to do that was through metaphors, which is exactly what's happening in this animal vision and pretty much any other vision that mystics are having. So something that's important as well is not just to see what people are coming up with and to encourage a different kind of modern interaction with these texts, but also to really embrace the medieval spirit that the mystics were sort of living in, in the sense that it's through images, it's through the symbolic aspect of trying to describe these ineffable things by drawing on different aspects of the world that we know and the world as we can comprehend it in order to communicate that idea. And we can really never forget that, yeah, ultimately visions are not just a reading experience. They engage all of the senses, and that does include, obviously, vision. So yeah, in, in the medieval spirit, this project envisions providing visions <laughs> for people to, yeah, to engage with, to draw, to hopefully be inspired by, and really think about the image that they're seeing, and try to understand through making the actual art. Exactly. So Envisioning Visions is a website where we're going to be posting a monthly vision in the hopes of inspiring a mystical fan art community. And hopefully people will see these, read them, engage with them, and create some weird and wonderful things. Yes, we're hoping that this will be a really fun project for everyone as, as much as I, I found it quite fun to try to draw <laughs> this strange mystical vision. So if you are interested in this project, you can find the link to the website in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at Envision Visions, which is hard to say, but not as hard to type, hopefully. And you can find us on Instagram at Envisioning Visions. But I think that is more than enough self-promo. Let's go to our final question of the podcast, which is, Hannah, please tell me, why is Mechtild your favorite mystic? Well, I mean, I'm going to have trouble answering this, I think, as, as a lot of people have on this podcast. And that's in part because it was hard for me to pick one favorite mystic. I consider that I have a holy trinity of mystics who are my favorites and Mechthild numbers amongst them. And I think that she's my favorite mystic because she's paradoxical, because she is so hard to understand and so easy to understand at the same time, because she's so emotional. And she really moves me when I read, if that makes sense. It's quite a personal experience for me. So yeah, she's really emotional and really abrasive and kind of aggressive. And she's just a really vivid person. And she engages with her world in such a human way. You don't get the sense that she's saintly or ethereal or a mystic sometimes you just get the sense that she's this person who just wants to live her best life wants the world around her to be better than it is and doesn't know how to make that happen but is trying so hard to make that happen and also to make herself as happy as she can in a world that i think ultimately causes her a great deal of suffering and I find her really, really relatable because of that. And absolutely fascinating because she doesn't always make sense. 
sometimes it's the unpicking of these texts and the solving of the puzzle in a way that makes them so intriguing. Precisely. They make you think critically. They make you ask questions about their experience, about your experience. And something that I find really enlightening about reading any mystic, but particularly Mechthild and the others in my Holy Trinity of Mystics, is that there are so many things that they say, or sort of emotions that they feel, or even epiphanies that they seem to have, that still resonate today, that make sense in my own life and make sense of my life for me in a lot of ways. And they force me to rethink the framework that I'm coming from a lot of the time. And they force me to understand my own world in a way that I would never have encountered otherwise. So I don't think that they're not valuable to read. In fact, precisely the opposite, obviously. But because they still have so much to say because ultimately what Mechthild, what I think mystics in general, but specifically Mechthild is doing is commenting on what it means to be an emotional and feeling person in a world that she can't connect to or that she's trying really hard to connect to. And I think that to a certain degree, that really speaks to the human experience because ultimately all humans are just trying to connect and understand in a world that doesn't always make sense to us, even if it's our own. And on that profound and beautiful note, I want to say thank you so much, Hannah, for joining me today and for speaking about Mechtil von Magdeburg. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. It has been wonderful to talk about Mechtild. And it was wonderful to listen to you speak about Mechtild. A reminder that if you're interested in the Envisioning Visions project, you can find a link to that in our show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend. You can find us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic, and join me next time when I speak to Louise Nelstrop about Richard Rolla.